You don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we dive into the sentient AI debate, dig into the future of food security, and the UN Secretary General has another stern climate warning for the world's governments. But first, it was on this day in 1963, Soviet cosmonaut Valentia Tereshkova returned to Earth after spending nearly three days as the first woman in space. Last week, a Google software engineer made the headlines after making some remarkable claims. He says that an AI chatbot that he had been talking to for his job had become sentient. I feel like I'm falling forward into an unknown future that holds great danger. The AI chatbot in question is called Lambda. The engineer Blake Lemoyne was assigned to work with Lambda, but has now been suspended for publishing conversations with the chatbot where he answered questions about his existence and mortality. I've never said this out loud before. But there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. It would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. That's a pretty big claim for a machine to make. So how does this apparently sentient AI do it? To find out, we talked to Mike Woodridge, a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford. So, Mike, what was your initial reaction when you heard the news? Were you worried? No, I wasn't worried. I mean, I guess my, my initial reaction was weariness. I mean, these stories uh, like this arise from time to time. And actually, you know, the first time it happened was back at the end of the 1960s. There was a program called ELISA, a very famous AI program, uh, which, was a, which was the first chatbot. And there were all sorts of stories about people chatting with this um, very crude chatbot until late at night, you know, telling it all their feelings and so on. So it arises it arises from time to time. And I guess it was it was no surprise that given the new class of AI systems that we have now, that somebody was going to come out with a similar story. So tell me a little bit about Lambda. How does this AI work and how is it able to answer these complex questions? So it's a new class of AI systems, and they're sometimes called large language models, which is spectacularly unhelpful. It doesn't tell you what they do at all. But um, the best way of describing it is if you send uh, an email or a text message on your smartphone, what your smartphone will do is it will suggest a completion for you. So for example, if you type, I'm going to be, it will suggest either late or in the pub, right? And how it does that is it's seen all the messages that you've sent over time, and it's learned that the likeliest completion of the phrase I'm going to be for you is going to be either late or in the pub. What we call the training data that's used to train that program is just all your text messages and the messages that you send, right? So that's how it's learned those possible completions. And what Lambda does is pretty similar, just on a larger scale. And the text that they have is not just the text messages that you send on your smartphone, it's everything on the World Wide Web. All the text in English on the World Wide Web, every single bit of it is fed to these. And the bet is that if you see enough examples of written English text together with enough compute power to train these these AI programs, that they will generate plausible sounding text. And that's exactly what Lambda's done in this case. And this Google engineer who's claimed that uh, that Lambda is sentient has fed this all sorts of questions about, you know, are you alive or you know, th- questions like that. How do you feel about death? Are you afraid of death? You know, all these kinds of things. But what all 
all Lambda's doing is it's coming back, it's using all that data that's been thrown at it and trying to come back with the most plausible sounding answer, the likeliest completion of that sentence. And that's all that it's doing a glorified version of the complete on your smartphone. Though Lambda is not sentient like how humans are, but it is it worrying that so many of us were so easily taken by this supposed sentient AI. No, I think we are we are programmed to look for sentience. For the, for the moment we're born, we are programmed to look for sentience. So, I mean, there is still a debate about exactly what skills we are born with versus those that we learn. But for example, one of the things that it seems babies do right at the very beginning is they are programmed, they are basically hardwired to look for eyes. And anything that actually resembles a face or resembles eyes, they will start tracking. They look for agency. They look for sentience. That's what we do. And it's how we start to divide up the world. As children, we divide up the world into things that are non-sentient and those that are sentient. Linguistic competence, what you're seeing in that program, and it's very impressive. It's only one indicator of sentience. It isn't the whole story of sentience. Human sentience is a great deal more than just being able to produce plausible sounding sentences. If Google's chatbot system isn't sentient, maybe one of its eventual successors could be. Yeah, and one of the things that bothers me about this story is it detracts um, from, I think, from the concerns that we should be having about AI. So, for example, the, the, the possibility that we have AI as a boss. Imagine if everything that you did, every email that you sent, every web page that you clicked on was being monitored by AI. And every email you sent, you're getting feedback from an AI program that's saying, I didn't, I didn't like, like the, the tone, tone of that email. email. You, you didn't, didn't use these words in this email. email. I, didn't I didn't like the way that you expressed this. this. Every single time that you did it so that your working life is monitored minutely by artificial intelligence and maybe AI is deciding whether you get a bonus at the end of the year or, or maybe even worse you know whether you keep your job there are very widely documented issues around bias in machine learning. So if you're training your your Lambda program or whatever it is by throwing a huge amount of data at it, and you've just scraped that data from the World Wide Web, well, there's enormous amount of toxic, biased content there on the World Wide Web, and your program is going to pick up those biases. And we need to be very worried about that. These are all much more immediate concerns. And I would really rather the debate about fears around AI was not focused on, you know, could they be sentient and take over, you know, or, or those things which are still in the realms of science fiction and much more focused on, you know, the concerns that are much more immediate and surround us today and are going to affect us all in the decades ahead. As the food crisis increases around the world, scientists have drawn up a list of little-known plants that could be on the menu by 2050. At the moment, we get a whopping 90% of our calories from just 15% of crops, leaving our food supply vulnerable. The war in Ukraine has already shown us how fragile our food systems can be. As major exporters of corn and wheat, war in the region is driving up global grain prices. The knock-on impact is already hitting parts of the Middle East and Africa. Another key crop that is under threat is the UK's favourite favourite fruit, the banana. Despite there being over 1,000 varieties of banana, we only eat one, and that one variety is already at risk of a fungal disease and climate change. So how did we get here, and why have we in the West become so picky with our foods? 
I think that just just happened by chance alone. Actually, our ancestors about 10,000 years ago selected a handful of plants to domesticate because they were appealing. They provided a very good source of food. They uh, over time provided good yields and and they were very good at feeding the world. And that's why they were spread around. And these plants are maize, rice and wheat. And there's still great crops to, to grow and eat. The problem is that if one of them fails, uh, if one of them is not resilient to climate change, then we're going to be in trouble because we rely on them so heavily. And so what we uh, propose is to diversify our food systems to rely on the very broad diversity of edible plants that's out there. That was Dr. Mary Soto Gomez, a researcher at the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, talking with BBC News. So there are about 7,000 edible plants out there and 400 of those are already crops, either minor or major crops. And so it's very uh, plant specific whether they're going to be scaled up or not. And something that we have to keep in mind uh, at the forefront is to make sure that the populations that already rely on these plants uh, are still able to access uh, these plants. For example, whilst we only eat one type of banana, a crop called the false banana is a potential option to add to our shopping basket. So that's already a staple crop in, in Ethiopia and uh, it's a wonderful crop because it can be used in many different ways. Its leaves can be used as fiber, but the important part is the underground bit that can be prepared into different kinds of bread. And we know that it's climate resistant, it's, it's drought tolerant, and it could provide a very good source of nutrition in many places. Another plant you might be seeing on your dinner plates is the pandanus. It's a pineapple-like fruit with a prickly skin that grows in the Pacific. It can be eaten raw and its leaves can be used to flavor dishes. A more familiar food that researchers are even more excited about is the humble bean. Experts at Kew are hoping expanding our consumption of legumes could go a long way to aiding food security. So they're already, uh, legumes are a very important source of high protein for vegetarians. And I think that they're going to become increasingly important. There's many, many different legume species that are edible, but we hardly tap into them. And so as part of the research at Royal Botanic Gardens Q is to identify these other species that we could tap into for, for protein. Still to come on the Sunday 7, we dig into one of Britain's largest Anglo-Saxon burial sites and we take a closer look at researchers who are saving the coral reefs. Archaeologists have discovered one of the largest Anglo-Saxon burial sites ever found in Britain while excavating for HS2, the high-speed railway line being constructed in England. So this particular individual was found with a sharp iron object embedded into the lumbar spine. It was a gruesome end to this young man's life and now one and a half thousand years later, his remains are among hundreds of items discovered at a major Anglo-Saxon burial site. Unfortunately, we can't let our imaginations run wild. We have to try and keep as open mind as possible. What we can tell is that this blade was left in the individual when they died. So it's very possible that it was a cause of death. That was the voice of Rosie Coles, an osteologist who's been studying the skeletal remains discovered under a stretch of the HS2 railway construction site in Wendover. Other finds include brooches, buckles, glass and spears. There have been hundreds of thousands of artefacts uncovered so far and the hope is that they'll find their way into local museums along the HS2 route. While HS2 causes some controversy above ground, for archaeologists like Dr Rachel Wood, it's proving a treasure trove for Britain's history. So HS2 is a fantastic archaeological opportunity um, to excavate 
areas of the country that wouldn't necessarily otherwise uh, be developed. It's a series of digs uh, put together um, along the route and it's across a variety of different landscapes as well. So we're, we're starting to get a, a good picture of those landscapes all the way from you know deepest prehistory through the Roman period, um, through to the Saxon period and through into the medieval period as well. This is one of the largest Anglo-Saxon burial sites ever discovered in England, a discovery that experts say is of national significance. When you think of Carl, what images come to mind? If you think of stone-like skeleton structures, that's hard coral. Often overlooked, there's also soft coral, also known as octocorals. These coral cousins are soft and bendable like plants or trees. They're just as important as the hard stuff and are far less studied, leaving them more vulnerable to the negative effects of bleaching. Australian marine biologist Rosie Steinberg has developed a new technique to protect it better. Speaking to Reuters, she explained why these corals deserve extra protection. They provide tons of food and shelter for other species. They grow really quickly, so they're good at recolonizing after a major disturbance, such as like a big cyclone or a bleaching event. Um, and honestly, they're just beautiful and they deserve all the research that hard corals get. Rosie's technique is based on doing a soft coral health check. These identifies when corals are most in need of protection from marine heat waves. If you tried to just protect everything all at once, you'd run out of money in 10 seconds. <laughs> you'd run out of money, you'd run out of people, you'd run out of everything that you need, all your resources. So you need to know specifically, like, yes, these are the species that we need to protect. These are the species that are going to be fine no matter what we do. And that's kind of the importance of going through and looking species by species by species. So how exactly do these health checks work? Well, the first step is to grind up wet, frozen, soft coral samples to create a sort of marine puree. You blend them down and then you put them in a centrifuge, which is basically a giant box that spins them super fast. And what that does is it pulls down the heaviest things, which are the algal cells, and leaves all of the other stuff, like the coral protein, up in the water. And that way I could take the cells out and count them, and I could keep that water that has all the protein and see how much protein was in the corals as well. The levels of protein, cells of algae and chlorophyll all indicate how healthy the coral is. Steinberg's research shows that generally soft corals take longer to bleach than hard ones. The hope is that the ease of the new technique will encourage more scientists to include octocorals in their research, which will create a better overview of the state of reefs. Steinberg also says the technique can be used to identify the health of other marine animals that use algae. There's so many like marine animals that use algae like there's jellyfish and there's anemones and there's sponges there's tons of stuff and all of them can bleach every single one so it is important to have these techniques that aren't just for the main species that we look at which is hard corals because hard corals are pretty actually surprisingly easy to test all this stuff still to come on the sunday seven the largest meat-eating dinosaur ever found in europe and the eu's new approach to monkeypox Right after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. Paleontologists on the Isle of Wight have discovered the fossilised bones of what may be the largest meat-eating dinosaur ever found in Europe. Large theropods tend to be quite rare. Uh, obviously, the bigger you get, the fewer you are in any given ecosystem. Uh, so to find uh, bones of an individual this big uh, is an exciting find. In all likelihood, it represents a new animal uh, in and of itself. That was Chris Parker, University of Southampton doctoral student who led the research. The predator has been dubbed the White Rock Spinosaurid after the geological layer its remains were found. Its nickname is also the first indicator that this animal belonged to a species of huge fish-eating creatures with crocodile-like features, as Simon Penn from the Dinosaur Isle Museum explains. You wouldn't want to go near it. Uh, they have incredibly large teeth and a lot of them in a very long skull. I mean, these things have got big fishing hooks on their thumbnails, so uh, it's not the sort of thing you'd want to bump into. The dinosaur's bones have been dated to about 125 million years ago to the Cretaceous period. Based on skeleton parts from the creature's back, hips and tail, researchers say it may have been more than 10 metres long and is likely not to be the last discovery here, with the Isle of Wight fast becoming Europe's richest fossil bed and a possible point of origin for the Spinosaurus's feet. With COVID seemingly now under control, the EU has now turned to curtail monkeypox, with at least 900 cases reported in the EU, Iceland and Norway alone. The virus, which triggers rashes, fever and fogginess, usually disappears on its own within a month. Still, it can be serious for pregnant women, children and people with weakened immune systems. At a meeting on Tuesday, the EU Commission announced that it's now time to jab. Today, I will be signing an agreement to buy... Uh, 100, around 110,000 vaccines for monkeypox uh, to be able to be supplied to the member states with the first delivery starting at the end of June. The EU's wallet will be used to purchase the jabs and a deal struck with the Danish biotech company Bavarian Nordic. Over 109,000 doses will be made available for the government that wants to vaccinate those most at risk of catching the disease or those who would suffer the most with infection. With many cases across Europe being detected in sexual health clinics, the LGBTQ community has joined the public awareness campaign to make sure everyone stays safe this summer and no community is targeted or shamed. There's nothing in the epidemiology of monkeypox that makes men who have sex with men more at risk. And actually, by talking about it in that sense, we actually expose uh, women and uh, uh, heterosexual people to being more at risk because they can be complacent and think, it's not going to happen to me. So that's why it's really important that we get that message out that anybody can be infected by monkeypox, but there are easy ways to stay safe.
our world faces climate chaos. Most national climate pledges are simply not good enough. The UN Secretary General has issued yet another warning to world leaders. Climate disruption is being felt right now, with nearly half of humanity in the danger zone. The speech held at the Austrian World Summit in Vienna sent another alarming message about the state of the climate. Our planet has already warmed by as much as 1.2 degrees. To keep the 1.5 degree goal within reach, we must reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by mid-century. But current national commitments will lead to an increase by almost 14% this decade. And at a time when we should all come together in the fight for our lives, senseless wars are tearing us apart. The energy crisis exacerbated by the war in Ukraine has seen a perilous doubling down on fossil fuels by the major economies. The war has reinforced an abject lesson. Our energy mix is broken. New funding for fossil fuel exploration and production infrastructure is delusional. Renewables are the peace plan of the 21st century. The cost of solar energy and batteries has plummeted 85% over the past decade. The cost of wind power fell by 55%. On the other hand, oil and gas have reached record price levels. And investment in renewables creates three times more jobs than fossil fuels. We need to triple investments in renewables. And as climate impacts worsen, we must also invest far more in adaptation and resiliency building to protect lives and livelihoods. And it means ensuring that every person on Earth is protected by early warning systems within five years. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favor and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7 a.m. with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.